Interfaith Voices, this is Inspired. Each week we explore the beliefs that shape our world, our politics, our culture, and events that impact our lives. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we begin with the life of Roman Catholic nun, Sister Diane May Ortiz. In 1987, shortly after taking her vows in the Ursuline Order, she traveled to Guatemala to be a missionary, teaching Mayan children in San Miguel, Acatan. It was a mission taking place at a time when the country was in the grips of a civil war. And it was during that conflict that an estimated 200,000 people were killed and thousands were kidnapped and tortured at the hands of military and government forces. And that included Sister Ortiz. On November 2, 1989, she was abducted for 24 hours and tortured. Unlike many, she survived. After returning to the United States, she made a determination to dedicate her life to holding the U.S. government to account for its complicity in supporting the right-wing regimes in the 37-year Civil War. Ortiz became a global human rights advocate and a voice for survivors of torture until her death in February 2021 at the age of 62. Independent journalist Maria Martin from Guatemala brings us her story and journey. A note of caution, listeners. This story includes discussion of difficult topics, including sexual violence and abuse. Those who knew her recall the petite, slender sister Diana Ortiz appeared delicate, yet possessed a spirit of incredible strength. She came across as fragile. She was very artistic, creative, gentle. Her sense of humor was gentle. Everything about her was gentle. But she was extremely stubborn and very strong and had a really strong moral kind of character. And she was very, very spiritual. The miracle of my life is that out of unspeakable horror came a new mission in life. And I no longer have any doubt who set me on it. Diana May Ortiz was born the fourth of eight children to Ambrosia and Pilar Ortiz, a homemaker and a uranium miner. Raised in Grants, New Mexico, since she was little, Diana talked about wanting to become a nun. She entered the convent at 17 and trained to teach small children. The young sister Diana wanted to become a missionary, especially in Latin America. In 1985, Diana was given the opportunity to work in the remote indigenous village of San Miguel Acatán in Guatemala. The country was then still in the throes of a bloody civil conflict that was to take more than 200,000 lives before ending in 1996. In an effort to find out why she was abducted by the Guatemalan military just a few years into her stay, I traveled to that mountain community in 1999 to investigate the story. 
What you'll hear next is from that documentary. It's not easy to get to San Miguel Acatan in the northern Guatemalan Highland province of Huehuetenango. But this outlying Maya community was where a 30-year-old Ursuline missionary came in 1985. And today, next door to the white church that marks the center of San Miguel, built around a flower garden and a statue of the Virgin Mary, stands the brightly colored Escuela Parroquial Diana Ortiz, the Diana Ortiz Parochial School. This community knew and admired Diana Ortiz very much, and that's why they named the school after her. Today, Chico Martin is conducting religious training in Mayan for parents in San Miguel. But 10 years ago, he says he worked closely with Diana Ortiz, the woman the school and also his nine-year-old daughter are named after. Well, we remember her to this day. She started the youth ministry and helped the young people a lot during the time of the violence. She supported the young men who were forcibly recruited into the army. She did a lot of work, good work. The sentiment that Diana Ortiz's presence is still being felt, even after she left San Miguel so many years before, even after her recent death at the age of 60, was expressed by many at memorials in Diana's many communities. All-powerful God, we pray for Sister Diana, who responded to the call of Christ and pursued wholeheartedly the ways of perfect love. During these memorials, people recalled how this gentle and strong woman's life and spiritual path were shaped by her experience in Guatemala. The Washington, D.C.-based writer Pat Davis was a longtime friend and colleague and co-author of Sister Diana's memoir, The Blindfold's Eyes, My Journey from Torture to Truth. I think even before her torture, she had a strong sense of fighting for justice. And, you know, that's part of her her calling, I, I believe, to become a nun. I know that when she was teaching um, kindergarten, she was called the radical nun. But she was teaching them early on about justice and about peacemaking and nonviolence. And so I think that was already a strong part of her character. And that's why when she got the death threats in Guatemala, she didn't leave. Diana's memoir and my documentary from 1999 recount the terrible events of November 2nd, 1989, the day that shaped the direction of her life and her spiritual destiny. Unclassified U.S. Consular Report, U.S. Embassy, November 1989. Text of proclamation given to the consular section by the papal nuncio but of unknown origin regarding the alleged kidnapping of U.S. citizen Diana Ortiz is as follows. El jueves 2 de noviembre pasadas las 8 de la mañana, Diana pidió al encargado que le abriera la puerta hacia el jardín sola, 
On Thursday, November 2nd, 1989, about 8 a.m., Diana asked the caretaker to open the door to the enclosed gardens. She was there alone, reading the Bible, when a man put his hand on her shoulder and said, Hola, mi amor, which is a derogatory greeting from a man she doesn't know. Then another unknown man appeared. The man first insisted she should accompany them. She said she wouldn't go. So they showed her a pistol and said they would harm her friends if she didn't go. According to medical records, her back was burned 111 times. She was gang-raped, dropped into a pit with rats and human bodies, some living, some dead. En ese momento entró otra persona al cuarto. Uno de los hombres le dijo, Alejandro, ven a divertirte. At that moment, a fourth man entered the room. Someone said, Alejandro, come have some fun. But he answered them with an obscene word common in English among North Americans. He said, idiots, she's a North American, let her alone. It's already on the news on television. At one point, they were getting ready to rape me again, and that's when the fourth person came in to the clandestine cell, and that was Alejandro. And... They referred to him as their boss, and he spoke in Spanish, but his Spanish was not it was not that great. And it also also he had a, a very distinctive American accent. And after he oh God, I hate to remember this. When she spoke to me for that radio documentary in 1999, it was clear that Sister Diana Ortiz remained haunted by her horrific encounters in that torture chamber, and also by what she came to believe were betrayals, principally from her own government. Why did the U.S. Embassy at the time appear to doubt her story? when they knew that torture was used by the Guatemalan military to control its population. And she wondered, what was an American doing in the torture chamber to begin with? When he told me that he was taking me to see a friend at the U.S. Embassy, immediately I thought, you know, what is this? You know, is this a person who is working with my government? What am I supposed to think? The man they called Alejandro removed her blindfold and helped her dress. He put her in a gray Suzuki Jeep, and they proceeded to drive through busy Guatemala City traffic. During their Jeep ride, Alejandro told Diana that she'd been confused with someone else. When we were in the Jeep, that's when he spoke to me in perfect American English. And he told me that I should forgive my torturers and in other words forget what happened and he reminded me that they had uh, a video and some photographs of some acts that I was forced to participate in she kept moving away from my microphone as she recalled that at one point in the clandestine cell, one of the men had put a knife in her hand, then forced his hand over hers, and compelled her to stab a woman who lay bleeding on a cot in the prison. All this was filmed, taped, and photographed, as Ortiz's Alejandro reminded her during that jeep ride. 
Did you feel threatened? Did you feel this was a threat? It was a threat. It was a threat. How could it not be a threat? You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, let's get back to the story of Sister Diana Ortiz, reported by independent journalist Maria Martin. As soon as we heard that Diana was captured and was, you know, undoubtedly being tortured, then we just put up every possible response to have her, you know, released. When word got out of Diana's disappearance in Guatemala, back in the U.S., a woman named Sister Alice Sackman, the founder and the director of the Washington, D.C.-based Guatemala Human Rights Commission, USA, was busily contacting her religious and human rights networks to find the kidnapped nun. Riding in the jeep with a man called Alejandro, Diana's mind was racing. Who was he? And what were his intentions? Again, Sister Alice Sackman. Why was the guy from the United States in the torture chamber uh, with her and then offering to take her to the U.S. Embassy? I doubt very much if he would have ever done that. When the jeep came to a stop at a busy intersection, Diana managed to get out and ran. Eventually, the young nun got help to get her to the Marinole House and from there to the residence of the Vatican's representative in Guatemala City. It was only Diana's own inner strength that made that release possible. She had enough mental capacity and help from God because of who she was that she was able to jump out of that jeep 
and run. Sister Alice says that even in her traumatized state, her actions demonstrated Diana's great fortitude. And I just have always, always admired her ability to do that and not to give up. In the months immediately following her kidnapping and for years afterward, the Guatemalan and U.S. governments conducted a smear campaign, sowing doubts about Diana's credibility, as she told a human rights trial in 2005. I was labeled a liar, a crazy woman, even that I was a political strategist who was trying to influence Congress to cut off USA to the Guatemalan military. I just knew that Diana was speaking the truth, and I wanted to give her the support that she needed to speak that truth, no matter what it cost. Guatemalan government document. January 12th, 1990. Sobre el caso de la religiosa Diana Ortiz, explicó que toda la versión no es completa e incluso... Regarding the case of the nun Sister Diana Ortiz, it's explained that her entire version is incomplete and lacks credibility. Her torture had destroyed Sister Diana's basic faith in God. For many years, she struggled with trauma, pain, and questions. If God were so interested in me, then why the burnings, the gang rapes, all the other horrors? Diana's faith really was a naive kind of simplistic faith when she went to Guatemala because it, it was the kind of faith of Jesus will take care of me, and it was completely shattered. I yearn to rest, to be free of memories, to be free of fear. And so writing the book was a lot of rebuilding. Again, writer and co-author of Ortiz's memoir, Pat Davis. Rebuilding a sense of what God is and, and what our relationship with God is and how, how it is that God can allow these horrible things to happen. I met evil face to face. I saw what human beings were capable of doing to one another. And with that realization, my own faith in humanity was shattered. When she finally began treatment at the Marjorie Kovler Center for Survivors of Torture in Chicago, Diana Ortiz began to speak about her feelings. I had many questions. I wanted to ask God But unfortunately, we were not on speaking terms at that moment. And so I turned to the Bible. She hadn't been able to open the Bible since her torture. Her therapist at the Kovler Center advised her to just let the pages open randomly. But every time she did, the pages would always open to the parable of Jesus with the loaves and fishes. Was I supposed to be guided by miracles? If there was one thing I most definitely did not believe in, it was miracles. But bit by bit, Diana Ortiz came to a deep understanding. It had to do with the concept of community and faith and hope. Life is absurd. Therefore, there is always hope. 
Jesus accepted what there was, five loaves of bread and two fishes offered by a boy. He didn't complain or despair. He gave thanks to God for them, however insufficient they seemed, and he started passing them out. This biblical lesson gave the still-broken Diana the motivation to continue a life of service. As time passed, I forgave God for not working some dramatic miracle on doing my past. She recognized something more from her interactions with other torture survivors. I learned that God was indeed working a quiet, unobtrusive miracle, healing me through other people. Those small gestures, smiles, hugs, and kind words, all we had to offer each other in that house in Chicago had begun to counteract the power of the torture, smirks, and punches. I don't think she completely healed, but she ended up being a much more whole human being than many people who haven't been through this. Again, Diana's friend, writer Pat Davis. Her experience made her a deeper, stronger, more spiritual person. And I think it made her probably more able to give. Like, the pain didn't go away. The memories didn't go away. She never regained who she had been before the torture. But she became another beautiful, loving creature. Take what you have in an attitude of faithfulness, in an attitude of faith, and it will be enough. It will be more than enough. That was what God had been trying to tell me. Sister Diana Ortiz used that perspective, informed by the terrible ordeal she'd gone through, to guide her spiritual and social justice vocation for the rest of her life. Through her work with the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission USA, as well as other human rights groups like Pax Christi, and as the founder of TASC, the Torture, Abolition, and Survivor Support Coalition, the only U.S. organization founded by and for survivors of torture. Many refugees who have been forced into exile do not have the luxury or the freedom to speak out. Many have families in their homeland. Others are seeking political asylum. And they live in fear that they will be returned to the country where they were tortured. She was very aware, even when she was in San Miguel, that she could leave because she had a U.S. passport. Other people did not have that luxury. Her faith was to walk with the people, to walk with the disadvantaged, to walk with the poor. And that's what nuns do. Each time I speak out, it is not about an American nun who was tortured. It is about every mother whose son or daughter is disappeared. It is about every person who has been tortured. 
physically, emotionally, sexually. It's about the 800,000 Rwanda children women and men who were slaughtered in a period of three months. And we, the international community, stood by and watched. It's about all the families of the disappeared, the assassinated, who daily watch the intellectual authors of these crimes go unpunished, as in Chile, Tibet, Guatemala, Burma, South Africa. It's about working collectively to try to prevent one more person from being tortured. Diana May Ortiz died of cancer on a wintry Friday in February 2021 at her Ursuline mother house in Kentucky. They say the snow she loved started just after she took her last breath. She could have been a very bitter woman and just felt sorry for herself. I mean, she just did the exact opposite. And I'm happy that she's at peace now. And she did, I think, what she could possibly have done. And I think that's why God took her home now. The indefatigable 95-year-old Sister Alice Ackman of the School Sisters of Notre Dame says, now we don't pray for Diana, we pray to Diana. That's right. I, I think she's already a declared saint. <laughs> Many other people have said the same thing. Sister Diana Ortiz, always teaching, came to believe that, as in her life, God has a plan for each of us. And I pray that your plan, God's plan for you, will rest on this credo, thou shall not be a victim, thou shall not be a perpetrator, and above all, thou shall not be a bystander. To those who knew and loved her, she hasn't gone away. Diana Ortiz, presente. For The Spiritual Edge, I'm Maria Martin. Maria Martin, an independent journalist based in Guatemala, is the author of Crossing Borders, Building Bridges, a journalist's heart in Latin America. This story was produced by The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor. Tarek Fauda is the engineer and Judy Silber, executive editor. To hear more stories like this, visit thespiritualedge.org. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you follow the Game of Thrones and enjoyed the dynastic politics, murder, and intrigue of rivals vying for power, religious studies professor and historian Bruce Chilton believes you might really enjoy learning about the real-world Herodian dynasty. And to be candid, he makes it easy. His latest book, The Herods. 
murder, politics, and the art of succession brings to life an old and ancient conflict with context and details that makes the narrative feel both accessible and relevant. Let's get to my conversation. What draws you to tell these stories? What drew you to tell this story in particular right now? There were several elements in this. Uh, Of course, because I've been working on the New Testament for a while, I've always had to engage in one way or another uh, with the dynasty of the Herods. But then it occurred to me that this whole dynasty had not been put together before so that you could see it unfold according to its own dynamics and also understand how it reacted, particularly in relationship to Christianity and Judaism. It seemed to me that we can understand better why Christian teachings emerged and Judaic teaching emerged in response to particular power plays by Herodian rulers. So in the end, the book also became a reflection on the way that political power is worked out in the midst of religious pluralism. And that, strangely enough, sounds like what's going on in our century. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Very much so. Go to piece together the characters and bring them to life. Individuals that are are in the history, but they're not really known to us. You you created full characters here. What did you turn to? What were your source materials? Yeah, I put together uh, different kinds of sources. So, for example, there are some materials in the New Testament, some of which are quite valuable, and. Uh, also in Judaic literature. So I became familiar with those sources over the course of time, so it was fairly straightforward for me to survey that. In addition, the Herodians took up the attention of several Roman historians, so one can trace their influence there. Even the poet Juvenal decided he would write a joke about Berenike. Uh, So by uh, considering Roman historians, Suetonius, Dio Cassius, figures of that kind, uh, it's possible to fill out the uh, picture. But then the single most dense source is that of Josephus. Uh, Josephus uh, wrote a history of the Jewish war that I mentioned that broke out during the 60s. He also wrote a complete account of the history of the Jews as he understood it. Who did you have in mind as you were sitting down to write this book? What does your audience need to know Do you need to have a history degree? Do you need to know the backstory? I think that a reader who simply wanted to follow the story could do so. It actually is as complicated as, say, Game of Thrones, but it's certainly no more complicated than that. That is, one can see the characters interacting. One gets to know them so that when they start behaving in the way that they do, you get accustomed to it over the course of time. And this is true of the Herodians themselves. It's also true of the various Roman emperors who come into the picture. It's true of Jesus and Paul, and also Judaic teachers of the time, such as Shemaiah, who comes up several times. So I think it is, in fact, uh, perfectly plausible to read it as a narrative. And that's basically the way in which I intended the main text of the book. I think that what strikes me most about uh, my students at the moment 
is that they are hungry for something that will give them a grounding in what is going on around them, how it is that it's possible to view the social setting in which they live and discover something that is humanly valuable and coherent, because it enables you to understand just how Christianity unfolded in its political environment. You are a historian, you're a priest, and you're an author that likes to bring us books of historical figures and cast them in a way that make them accessible. I'm curious, what drew you to the story of Herod the Great and his family? The dynasty is the most important political force there was during the first century from the point of view of both Christianity and Judaism. Many of the most basic ideas that we have about government in both those religious systems were formed in reaction to what members of the Herodian dynasty were doing. And of course, different members of the dynasty pursued differing policies at differing times. So you can really only understand a figure, say, such as St. Paul, from the point of view of an understanding of knowing who he was dealing with when he was immersed in the politics of the Near East. How many people know about Herod the Great? If I were to walk up to someone on the street and say, Herod the Great, one word, how much awareness is there, do you think, among, you know, the general population? I think the general population is well aware of the name Herod. The difficulty is that it wasn't just one person. It was an entire dynasty that went from the time of Herod's father, Antipater, until his great-granddaughter, Berenike. So it covers the entire period from the first century before the Common Era until the end of the first century of the Common Era. So what typically happens in modern culture is that one Herod is confused with another. And at times, they held very different positions. Some of them were actually kings. Herod the Great was a king. His grandson, Agrippa, was a king. But the others had rather more minor roles assigned to them by the Roman Empire. And therefore, the amount of power they could exert varied. And their attitudes towards Jews and Christians also differed. So the difficulty is the name is known, but the personalities and the power politics are largely unfamiliar. So what I wanted to do in my study of the Herods is to bring them together so that the reader can see how one period of rule led on to the next and how they influence both Christianity and Judaism. So the crucifixion of Jesus happened because of an agreement between the Herodian ruler of Galilee, whose name was Antipas, who had long wanted to do away with Jesus because he saw Jesus as a political threat, and the Roman prefect of Judea, whose name, of course, was Pontius Pilate. Now, a person could only be put to death by crucifixion, at the order of a Roman officer. No Herodian ruler could do that. But 
he was instigated in this role by Antipas, the Galilean ruler, and also by Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. So I described the way in which those figures worked together and how what they did was related to Roman politics at the same time. So this seismic event in the history of Christianity is directly related to the way in which the Herodians played their own particular power politics. You know, as you're describing it, it also lays out this relationship between church and state in a way that many who argue and think about it through modern context may not appreciate. Do you think that there is a value for people today who are interested or intrigued by how our politics and how our faith leaders and institutions interact? Do you think they could learn something from the history of of understanding this period of time? I think there's a lot to be drawn from this period because In every case, when a Herodian ruler was successful, it's because that ruler, whoever he was and whoever she was, knew how to negotiate two forces. On the one hand, of course, there was the Roman Empire. They were the ones who actually made political appointments and also provided the military might that made for successful rule. But they also had to accommodate to their constituencies within Judaism. This was by no means an easy task. If we believe today that we live in a time of religious division, we should spend some time visiting in the first century, where you see far more deep lines of cleavage and often recourse to violence. On occasion, There had to be, from the point of view of the dynasty, a direct and violent response. But on the whole, they managed to accommodate these two apparently contradictory forces. And I suggest that this is a moment of instruction in history, because the fact is that one cannot successfully govern a people if those people believe that their religious convictions are entirely alien to the order of the day. One has to have a degree of commitment to government, at least to the extent that it makes one's pursuit of ultimate values possible. I think myself that this has been uh, a wisdom which has been largely lost in the modern period, where the separation of church and state has been confused with separation of religion and state. A successful state is one in which differing religious constituencies can see themselves as able to pursue their aims without undue interference from the state. So it's this almost coexistence as opposed to dominance within one sphere versus the other. I think that's exactly the case. I think that's well put. And there has been a tendency when the idea of separation of church and state is invoked to think that means the state takes the place of religious commitment. That can lead to disastrous results. Either it will succeed and one discovers a totalitarian state, 
that takes on board far too much of the values of a society, as happened during the Third Reich, or in attempting to do that, there will be an enormous resistance within the population uh, because that kind of confusion, the tendency to make the state the religion, is one which I think is legitimately opposed by people who have any sort of religious conviction. When you look at the modern discourse, when you look at the modern discussions around how belief and politics become incredibly galvanizing for different constituencies, what instruction, what lesson do you draw from the history that you study? I think there are several insights that emerge out of that. One is that within any kind of religion which has within it many possibilities for the ordering of life and the structure of belief, whenever one of those attempts to overtake the other and to insist that it alone has the access to the truth of the religion, the result is that that faction begins to take on some of the characteristics of a state, right? It's beginning to make its own authority into the kind of legitimate violence that a state is made from. So there is an extent to which one can see in the first century that there was an ecology of belief which was healthy when differing groups could pursue their own particular values, but also that it became unhealthy in moments of violent revolt, which broke out on several occasions during the course of the first century. And some of this uh, revolutionary activity was from within Judaism. There was also a tendency under some of the Roman emperors, I think especially of Caligula, to assert their own authority as if it were a religion. The emperor Caligula actually ordered a statue of himself to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem, an act which it was widely regarded, even by Roman historians, as something that would have assured a huge civil war throughout the empire. He was actually prevented by Agrippa I, who interceded with the emperor to prevent him from doing what would have been a disastrous policy. So when groups attempt to monopolize the range of religious activity, the result is a disturbance of the ecology and also increasing violence. What positive lessons do you take from this first century filled with all this intrigue, murder, and political machinations? Part of what I have drawn from this is that the Herodians themselves, of course, were obsessed with power. And in many ways, they're a remarkably unreflective group of people because their pursuit is entirely practical. But their commitment was not only to themselves, their commitment was also to Judaism. Herod the Great himself was the one person responsible for extending the building of the temple in Jerusalem so that the remains of the temple that you can see today in Jerusalem date from the period of Herod the Great. He made that a centerpiece of his entire rule. 
also encouraging an enormous public works project and the genuine prosperity of Jerusalem. There was also the emergence of a surprising prosperity, a self-confidence, and the ability to pursue varying kinds of the religion of that time, including Christianity. At the end of the day, despite some sporadic persecution of Christians by Herodians, which did occur, I mentioned Antipas, Antipas also killed John the Baptist, but those were for political reasons. Antipas saw John the Baptist and Jesus as political threats, and later Agrippa, though a very noble person, was responsible for killing James, the son of Zebedee, because he saw, like the emperor Claudius, that one could choose minorities among Jewish groups and make them scapegoats for violence when it emerged. As you describe the strategy of choosing scapegoats, I have to say it reminds me of the medieval roots of the anti-Semitic blood libel myth and the way it also emerged as a tool for leaders to distract away from problems and threats to their authority. I think the idea that it is a distraction is incisive. There was without question before the emergence of Christianity pronounced anti-Semitism. Judaism was seen as an alien form to many people in the Roman Empire. And because Jews were a minority, they could be scapegoated so that often there would be riots that broke out against the Jewish population. It might be in major cities such as Alexandria and Caesarea Maritima. It might be in small villages. And then the Romans were called in to adjudicate that dispute to try to make sense of it. Much the same thing happened from the mid-century of the first century when Christians themselves were seen as a minority within the minority, which made them all the more tempting as a target for those who wanted to distract. The most famous case of this is the Emperor Nero in the year 64 when a fire broke out in Rome. Nero himself was actually suspected of being involved in the fire, and he pinned the blame on the Christians for the fire, and so authorized a pogrom within the city of Rome. Judaism has been in the minority right through this period, and it has been the most tempting target for various forms of conspiracy theory. I would be remiss to not point out that the conspiracy theory continues today in the QAnon movement. Unlike the first century, today people have a lot of avenues for getting information and for diving into conspiracies. Take us back to the first century. What was life like for the commoner? The most important thing to bear in mind, I think, is that one was attempting subsistence. Our notions of making one's life better, of becoming more prosperous, those are really luxuries of the modern period. And within the ancient period, and specifically in the Near East, the concern was to survive, to enable the family to continue intact, and to make peace as best one could with the differing forces that were surrounding that family. That included the Herodians, but they were also Romans. It's also a period of significant activity by 
people who today would be regarded as terrorists or criminals or freedom fighters, depending on one's point of view. And so one was attempting to negotiate all that while simply, in the most basic sense, making a living with very little in the way of educational attainment on the whole. Another factor to bear in mind is that literacy is not general, so that this is a culture that largely is transmitted on the basis of oral memory, recitation, songs, performance of religious rituals and duties. So this is a period which is really unlike our own. The idea of progress, which we largely take for granted, was really not a part of the intellectual furniture of this period. That's why the emergence of these religious systems is so fascinating. If you take the example of Jesus, who is very much in a minority, he's not only Jewish in the Roman Empire, he's in Galilee, which is not the privileged part of historic Israel. Within Galilee, he's born in a village where it is well known that there are problems about his paternity, however you look at it, which makes him largely an outcast. And yet, by means of his mastery of teaching, of metaphor, of acting on behalf of the way that he saw God operating in the world, he attracted a constituency. He made a movement without any kind of economic basis, as would normally be understood. And that example is something that is also duplicated elsewhere in the Judaism of this period, where despite apparently being hopeless, these people constructed very clear vehicles of hope. Bruce Chilton is the author of The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. He's a religion studies professor at Bard College and is the author of several publications and popular historical biographies. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to head over to our website where you can find the full interview. That's at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. Our producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.